It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, that didn't take long. I talked yesterday about OAN, One American News, and this big New York Times piece about how many of the people who worked there or recently worked there uh, don't believe some of the stuff that the network puts on the air. And I, I'm telling uh, various people this. There's one guy, a producer, who's still there after five years, quoted on the record, Marty Golligan. And Marty Golligan said to the New York Times, the majority of the people meeting at OAN did not believe the voter fraud claims being run on the air. Uh, he recalled seeing somebody at the Capitol riot with a flag with the OAN logo and said, oh, uh, this is what happens when people listen to us. He also said he'd been reprimanded by the news director for referring to Joe Biden as president, because that's pretty outrageous, let's face it. Okay, so uh, yesterday he was fired. Uh, about an hour after I finished the podcast, he was he was canned, and that's utterly predictable. And you have to think that in going public in this fashion, you know, he wanted to be fired, that he wanted an exit strategy. In fact, he was quoted uh, by the New York Times reporter who did the story, at least on her Twitter feed, as saying the following. Uh, I've given up my journalistic integrity already, and to be fired, that would make me feel good. I would wear it like a badge of honor. Um, you know, I mean, this way, I guess he goes out as a hero to some people. He stood up to OAN. Maybe it helps him get a job. I don't know. But it was really striking to see those on-the-record quotes about his employer. Um, I want to say a few words about the passing of Walter Mondale that we learned of this morning, the former vice president. You know, I'm too young to have covered him as vice president. But when I was a young reporter, a very young kind of rookie reporter uh, for the Bergen Record in New Jersey across the river from Manhattan, um, I was able to talk my bosses into letting me go to the 1976 Democratic Convention, um, which was in New York, uh, to, just to be the outside reporter to cover the, the scene and the, the street demonstrations, all the protesters, you know, the, the veteran political guys obviously were inside. But after a couple of days there, I managed to, like, you know, get somebody's pass and get my way inside. And I'll never forget this. Jody Powell, who, of course, later became... Jimmy Carter's White House press secretary, but was then the spokesman for the Carter campaign, was doing a briefing for the big papers that was embargoed until the next morning uh, about the selection of Mondale, which had just broken. You know, you wouldn't do it this way today. I mean, you'd have the presidential candidate come to the microphone and they'd appear together. Or, you know, you'd put it on uh, YouTube, whatever. But it was it was uh, Powell and a handful of reporters. And they were all morning papers, and the Bergen Record was an afternoon paper, so I actually had to say, look, uh, I won't put this in the paper uh, this afternoon. I'm not going to scoop anybody. I give you my word, but I want to be here. And, and Powell explained, uh, he offered some quotes from Carter, saying that Carter didn't know Mondale before, but he had interviewed him as part of the process. Mondale was then a liberal Democratic senator uh, from Minnesota, uh, and of course became VP. And the importance of his four years was that he changed the office of vice president. The vice presidents who followed, who had an enormous amount of influence, I'm thinking Dick Cheney, I'm thinking Joe Biden, can all thank Fritz Mondale because he made a deal with Carter that, yeah, I'll do it, but you know I don't want to be like my mentor, Hubert Humphrey, and not have anything to do and just be sent to funerals. And so Mondale was the first vice president to have an office in the West Wing, not off in Siberia, in the old EOB, uh, to have his staff integrated, to attend important meetings, get the uh, briefings and so forth. Uh, and so in that way, he really did change things. Then, of course, uh, the, the, their ticket lost in 80. In 84, Mondale runs for the Democratic nomination. 
goes up against Gary Hart, who was the, the phenom and looked at, you know, who, who won New Hampshire and everybody thought this was an incredible guy and he had all these new ideas. And Mondale had this line at one of the debates in the primary. There was a famous Wendy's commercial at the time. It was really hot with an old lady uh, looking at some, you know, other hamburger chains and says, when I look at your burgers, I think, where's the beef? So Mondale turns to Hart and says, when I listen to your new ideas, I think, where's the beef? And it was received very well. He ends up winning the nomination. Um, he picks Geraldine Ferraro, first woman to be a vice presidential candidate on a major ticket. She turned out to be a kind of a, shall we say, mixed blessing. Her husband had all these financial problems. It didn't really do much. In fact, um, then comes the debate against Reagan. And uh, Mondale says, we'll both raise taxes, but I'm the only one who will tell you that. That did not go over well. But Mondale won the first debate against Reagan. Reagan came across, he was telling a long story at the end. He seemed kind of old and confused, even though he was a very popular president. So in the second debate, Reagan comes back with this brilliant line, I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. Everybody cracked up. Mondale cracked up. And Mondale lost 49 states. He won only his home state of Minnesota and the District of Columbia, which could probably be won by a yellow dog. Uh, if that yellow dog was a Democrat. Uh, anyway, Walter Mondale, I think, was, is widely remembered. It's just a very decent and compassionate guy, whether you agreed with his politics or not. Uh, one more thing, the, uh, there's a memo out now from the Biden administration, the Customs Agency and the uh, Immigration Agency, saying we're not going to use any more uh, terms like illegal alien. We should use non-citizen or migrant. Uh, ICE in particular should use undocumented non-citizen or undocumented individual. Uh, this is about the dignity of those in our custody. Well, Tom Cotton, Republican senator, fights back. We use the term illegal alien because they're here illegally. Um, look, this, this started to change a few years ago. I was never comfortable with alien. It sounds like, you know, you've come from another planet. I don't have a problem with illegal. I don't have a problem with calling somebody an illegal immigrant. They have broken the law to be in the United States. You can get into the debate about should 11 million people be deported, uh, should the Dreamers get amnesty, and all of that. But they are illegal. So that part seems very PC to me. The alien part, uh, I could certainly do without, and at least in government pronouncements under this administration, uh, we will not be having that. All right, let's get to number one. Uh, we're all now awaiting. The jury has the case in the Derek Chauvin trial uh, for the murder of George Floyd. The closing arguments yesterday, uh, the prosecution, it seemed to me, put on a very compelling performance. Um, you know, going back to the 9 minute and 29 second video, uh, going back to all of the police testimony against him, all of the witness testimony against Chauvin, and all of that. Um, the defense, you know, has got a tough hand here. And so argued, you know, that there was uh, doubt, that there was reasonable doubt. They should give this guy the benefit of the doubt in the moment. And CNN's senior legal analyst has gotten really beaten up on here for going on the air or tweeting, I can't remember which, and saying, he didn't even argue his client was innocent. He was talking about reasonable doubt. Well, yes, of course, because in criminal law, the prosecution has the burden of proving guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. All the defense has to do is say there is reasonable doubt and you're not convicted. That's the way it's been for like a zillion years. You don't have to go to law school to know that. So that was a, kind of a surprising comment. Another surprising comment is Maxine Waters, the 82-year-old Democratic congresswoman from California, uh, just really, really moronic 
to throw kerosene on this potential fire right now uh, with all the protests going on in Minnesota over the, the uh, killing of Dante Wright by a police officer, and now everybody on edge awaiting the verdict. What if, it's a, what if one juror uh, has reasonable doubt and it's, it's a mistrial? Uh, will that spark perhaps violent demonstrations in Minnesota and around the country? Uh, that's why there's so much interest in this. So she comes along and shoots off her mouth, nobody asked her, and says, you know, he's guilty, 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 guilty. Thank you for sharing that, Congresswoman. And then if, if Derek Chauvin gets off, these protesters have to get more active and get more confrontational. Well, what do you think she's saying? Come on. Uh, and that's being interpreted by a lot of people as a not-so-veiled call to violence. Uh, so you have a split reaction. Nancy Pelosi, oh, she has nothing to apologize for. Perfectly reasonable. And Kevin McCarthy is saying uh, he's pushing a censure of Congresswoman Waters. But the real news here is the judge in the trial, Peter Cahill, said this in court, and everybody watched it who was watching the uh, live feeds, which was on cable news or streaming, telling uh, both the prosecution and the defense, I'll give you that Congresswoman Waters may have given you something, saying this to the defense actually, on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. But then the judge said that he was not going to declare a mistrial based on what uh, Maxine Waters said, even though it wasn't until the jury got the case that the jury was sequestered. So the jurors certainly may have heard this. But you, you have a lecture from the judge about a potentially uh, inflammatory and comments that could overturn a conviction. You've screwed up. You've screwed up big time. And people who don't want to acknowledge that are just showing their tribal loyalties. So, for example, Don Lemon on his CNN show is defending Maxine Waters. Do you really think Maxine Waters is calling for violence? Maxine Waters is not calling for violence. Everyone knows that. She makes a lot of people uncomfortable, especially a lot of men, and quite frankly, a lot of, especially a lot of white men, because she puts them in their place. That's Don Lemon's reaction to something that, that prompted a scolding by the judge in the case. Now, Lemon went on to say, uh, well, uh, you know, do I think what she said was constructive? Absolutely not. Do I think she should have said it? Absolutely not. But he, he, do I think she gave her enemies ammunition? Ammunition? I certainly do. Yeah, but maybe you shouldn't defend her. Oh, this is what she really meant. Because whenever it was Donald Trump, when he would say the Proud Boys should stand by and stand strong, whatever the exact quote was, or say other things about, you know, protesters. I, he would, at the rallies, somebody would be carried out, he'd say, you know, the police should rough them up, or, you know, I'd like to give that person a punch in the face, that's, and that sort of thing. His Trump supporters would say, oh, he's just being Donald, he's not really calling to incite any violence. And the people on the left and the Democrats say, this is absolutely the most incendiary thing I've ever heard. President Trump should be ashamed of himself. It just goes to show you how um, political all this is, how tribal it is. But, you know, I try to be, not let pol partisan politics influence what I say. Sometimes what Trump said was wrong, was inflammatory. Uh, and, and all of that, and I'm not going to go into the history in Charlottesville and, and so forth, or the Proud Boys. Um, and what Maxine Waters here said is inflammatory. To say it in this environment, with the case going to trial, after the murder of George Floyd, which sparked all of these demonstrations, many of which turned into riots, where people were killed or injured, where police cars were set on fire, where there was all this looting and stores were, and windows were smashed and all of that. 
It's not the place. It's not the time. It's incredibly insensitive. I'm not going to mince words about that. All right, let's move on to number two. Uh, the vaccine. So now we have a situation where half the adult population in America has gotten at least one dose of the vaccine. That's good news. The question is how much harder it will be to convince uh, the other half, uh, how much harder it will be even to convince people to get the second dose. So Politico has a story sort of blaming Donald Trump. And it's saying that a lot of the people who remain stubbornly resistant to getting this vaccine, and my position is very simple. It's an individual decision. It's up to you. It's up to you what you think is best for your family. But I personally think that everybody should get it because it is safe, it is effective, and it not only helps you, the people around you, your friends, your family, your colleagues, but it helps the whole country reach this elusive goal of herd immunity. Anyway, Politico says um, this is sparking a debate about what role, if any, the former president could play. Uh, his unwillingness to pitch his voters on getting the jab has become a source of frustration for former aides, says Politico, who lament the political benefits that would have come if he had done so. It's also worried health officials from his own administration who told Politico about a months-long effort to get him to publicly take the lead. And medical experts say a full-throated endorsement could sway vaccine skeptics on the right. Now, I don't know how much influence Trump would have or not, but he has said a couple of times that people should get it. But he didn't appear in that commercial with the other former presidents who, and he didn't, you know, he took his own vaccine with Melania in private. So there's no pictures of Trump getting vaccinated. Here is a blind quote. Former senior administration officials, if he spent the last 90 days being the voice and taking credit because he deserved to for the vaccine, as helping to get as many Americans vaccinated as he could, he would be remembered for that. Hmm. So, um, Trump was on Hannity last night. This came up. Um, and um, Hannity asked him, in the process of asking about uh, vaccination, he, uh, Trump said, they all want me to do a commercial because a lot of our people don't want to take the vaccine. You know, I don't know what that is exactly. Republican? They want me to do a commercial, some commercial, and they do this pause. That's the pause in the J&J vaccine over the blood clots. That are... And the former president has been critical of that, putting out a statement blasting the Biden administration for that J&J pause. But one thing, one quote was left out of the political story. Uh, uh, Trump also told Hannity, they want me to do a commercial saying, take the vaccine. They think that's very important. And I'd certainly do it. Well, whether he's going to do it or not, don't you think that's a relevant quote if you're writing about, you know, you think he's not being aggressive enough? By the way, uh, a March poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation found that one out of five Republicans who are hesitant to get the COVID-19 vaccine said in this poll a Trump endorsement would spur them to get immunized. So even if he can have an effect on 20% of the conservative holdouts or the Republican holdouts, that would be a good thing. A little footnote to this segment, Ted Nugent has tested positive for COVID-19. This is a guy who a few months ago was calling it not a real pandemic and a scam. He goes on Facebook Live, does a video, says, yeah, I had, I've had flu symptoms for the last 10 days. I thought I was dying. He went on to use racist language, describing the virus as the Chinese S. Uh, it was back in December that he said it was just a scam. But now he says he's had a stuffed up head, body aches and more. I literally could hardly crawl out of bed 
the last few days. I take no pleasure in reporting this, but some of the people who said it's BS, it's a scam, it's a conspiracy theory, unfortunately later got it. And the rock, former rock star, I guess you call him a rock star, is the latest to actually get COVID-19. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Okay, let's move on to number three in the Atlantic. There is a piece about whether Joe Biden will run for a second term. Now, you might say, hey, what? Do I even need to be thinking about this? He hasn't even finished his first hundred days. And we're going to be worried about 2024. That was sort of part of my knee-jerk reaction. But the piece ties it to Biden's strategy now by saying he's going big now with all of these bills. I mean, you had the $2 trillion COVID aid and economic aid package. Now you have him pushing the infrastructure and more bill, I call it, because there's a hell of a lot more in there than just infrastructure. That's another $2 trillion. That would be paid for, um, depending on what happens and whether there's any compromise with the Republicans. Biden met with a bipartisan group of lawmakers yesterday. Uh, paid for by raising uh, corporate taxes, not as high as they were before Trump, but higher, and raising taxes on people over 400000 which, by the way, polls well. Most people don't make over $400,000 a year, and they're like, yeah, the rich don't pay their fair share, too many loopholes, they get fancy accountants, they have, uh, you know, uh, tax shelters, they have money in the Cayman Islands, whatever. So rather than, you know, the Republican view is, well, you know, he's going to actually have people pay more in taxes, most people, at least according to what they tell pollsters, are like right on in any way. Back to the Atlantic piece. Uh, this says, look, he spent the bulk of his adult life running for president or auditioning to be president, I guess, as VP. Now he is president, and there's a lot of speculation. Would he really walk away from the job? No one seriously believed that Clinton or Bush or Obama or Trump or any president over the last half century would voluntarily forego a second term if they had even the faintest hope of winning. But Biden is unique. He gave the impression when he ran that he would be a bridge to the younger generation of leaders. A lot of people say, oh, Kamala Harris, he's just setting her up to be a successor. But as the Atlantic acknowledges, he's 78 years old, older than Reagan was when Ronald Reagan left the White House after two terms as president. Um, the piece says you don't need to buy into Trump's cartoon portrait of Biden as enfeebled and infirm to suspect that the rigors of office could push him into one-and-done territory. Here's a quote from John Ma, M-A-A, Democratic National Finance Committee member, who also happens to be a surgeon. I worry that he may not, for health reasons, be able to continue serving until 2024. Uh, as a doctor, I do have some concerns about the relentless daily stress and anxiety for someone his age, a former Biden campaign advisor, telling Atlantic, that job sucks the life out of you if you're 30 years younger than he is. Anyway, so he goes on to say, the piece goes on to say he's going big. That's why he's trying to get all his spending bills done now. Who knows if he'll be around? Who knows if the Democrats will have a Senate majority or even a 50-50 tie after uh, the midterms next year? Then it goes on to quote uh, Biden supporter as saying he wants to govern for eight years. He spent 50 years with his nose pressed against the glass and eight years really, really close to the presidency. Now he's got it. Uh, another person says he's a very young 78 years old. Like, there's this whole debate. I know... A lot of people on the right are like, no, Biden, you can barely string two words together. He's suffering from dementia and all that. I just think it's irresponsible to say that. Is he the same? Does he have the same sharpness that he had when he was 68 or 58 or 48? Of course not. Who does? But, you know, I watched that news conference. A lot of the questions were soft. I watched that town hall with Anderson Cooper. A lot of the questions were both from the audience and from Anderson 
were pretty favorable, pretty sympathetic. But, you know, to, to delve into the details of policy for an hour and a half on television, not anybody could do that. Is Biden also a self-described gaffe machine, which is one of the reasons his team, obviously with his acquiescence, is keeping him from doing very many interviews, uh, from taking very many questions from the press. One news conference so far in the, whatever it is, 87 days, it's, I guess it's about 90 now. Yeah, okay. It's called, I mean, I don't approve of it. As I've said, I think he should do more. I think it is the job of president to talk to reporters regularly. But there's nothing that says that in the Constitution. And if they think, look, his approval ratings in the 50s, we're doing well with this approach. Why don't we stick with it? One can understand that. Uh, at the moment, I'm not going to worry about what he's going to do in 2024. And there's one last piece here. Let's say Joe Biden knows in his heart, I'm not going to run for re-election in 82. That would be insanity. Uh, I will have done my four years. I will have done my part to turn the country around. And then it's time for somebody younger, whether it's Kamala, Kamala or someone else, to, to come along. You don't say that publicly because the minute you even hint it, you become a lame duck, and that reduces your clout now. Biden's been a politician for a long time, and he certainly knows that. All right, number four, it was revealed in an interview with the, by the Washington Post with the D.C. chief medical examiner that Brian Sicknick, uh, who was one of the officers who was attacked by rioters at the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol and who tragically died, uh, actually died of natural causes by suffering two strokes the day after the riot. In his ruling, which was later released, that will make it difficult for prosecutors to pursue homicide charges in the officer's death. Now, Two men are accused of assaulting Sicknick by spraying a powerful chemical irritant at him during the siege, but prosecutors have not tied that exposure to Sicknick's death. So, Francisco Diaz, the medical examiner, said the autopsy found no evidence that the 42-year-old officer suffered an allergic reaction to chemical irritants, which could have caused his throat to quickly seize. Also no evidence of internal or external injuries. Okay. So this is one of those things that's going to go, it already is going into the partisan grinder. And I will say this, first and foremost, if there had not been a riot at the Capitol on January 6th, Brian Sicknick would still be alive. There is absolutely positively no question about it. It is not some coincidence that he suffered these strokes after being under great stress battling the mob at this rampage and storming of the Capitol. The two, it's not just some, you know, theory or indirect thing. The two are obviously directly connected. Even the medical examiner says so. The medical examiner says that Sicknick was among the officers who engaged the mob and, quote, all that transpired played a role in his condition. Having said that, uh, there's a New York Times story that he was attacked with a fire extinguisher. That now does not appear to be true. Um... The stories about the him being pepper sprayed or whatever the chemical irritant was, apparently that is not a great thing to have happened to you to happen to you when you're fighting a, a, a crazy mob, but that's not the cause of the death. But the strokes are the cause of the death, if the, we believe the chief medical examiner. And again, and I just so feel for his family. I remember the lovely memorial service uh, for Officer Sicknick, the bravery that he showed in responding to this riot, um, you know, whether he died because he was struck by blunt force at uh, the riot, which did not happen now, we know that, that's been 
reported, assumed, speculated about, and the media did rush to judgment here, and the media are not flawless, and the story about the fire extinguisher, I guess, was not confirmed. But you suffered two strokes. You're 42 years old and otherwise healthy, and you suffered two strokes the day after that kind of high-stress, traumatic confrontation. Uh, I don't think it's too much to say that that played an absolutely crucial role in his unfortunate death. Uh, number five, I'm just enjoying so much. So, as you know, uh, Donald Trump is one of the voices who is saying we must uh, boycott Major League Baseball, despite the fact that I just saw an item saying that the streaming ratings are up tremendously, even though, look, baseball, by moving the All-Star game out of Atlanta, uh, because in the protest against the Georgia voting law, moving it over to Denver, um, pissed off a lot of people. Thought this was an overreaction, politically correct, uh, Major League Baseball should not be involved in politics and all that. But at the same time, Trump has also called for a boycott of other companies, particularly these Georgia companies, that have spoken out against the Georgia voting rights bill, which, as I've said, uh, is a mixed bag. It actually helps in some ways. By There's an extra Saturday of early voting, but clearly it makes it more difficult to vote by mail. Uh, demands for ID, we could debate that endlessly. So Trump said he put out the statement, Delta, Coke, um, we should boycott them. Okay, so CNN decided to do an investigation. I just love this, the, the skullduggery of this. So CNN says, now that Trump is back at his company, it does, among other things, hotels and hospitalities, it's a little different for him to be asking people to boycott Coke. Something he's known to love, of course, Diet Coke addict. A CNN reporter enjoyed a Diet Coke at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. The soda cost $9. All right, that's the scandal. But a friendly and professional waiter did offer two free refills of the drink. The big boss's feelings about the soda never came up. A second CNN reporter sipped on a Diet Coke at the club bar at the Trump National Doral Golf Club in Miami before a speech by Matt Gates. Also, that was, I guess, uh, earlier this month. And despite what the former president said, he doesn't appear to have taken any action to stop vendors at properties that are actually named for him from serving Coca-Cola products. At Doral... The CNN reporter spotted a case of Diet Coke bottles opened and ready for use behind the eponymous Donald J. Trump ballroom. And at the otherwise empty bar of the DJT restaurant inside Trump's Las Vegas hotel, a CNN reporter was served a Coke without any hesitation. So I just love this. They're fanning out across the country. Vegas, Miami, D.C. And it reminds me of the old John Belushi skit, you know, the old cheeseburger skit. Uh, no Coke, Pepsi. No, no, I want a cheeseburger. No cheeseburger. Fries. No Coke, Pepsi. So, okay, I guess it's a fair point that Trump calls for Coca-Cola to be boycotted and his own hotels and golf clubs are still serving Coke, then he's not backing up his actions with his words. But I just find hilarious the fact that these various CNN reporters, whoever they were, probably junior reporters, okay, your job you got to be discreet here. Don't tell anybody you're a reporter. Go up to the bar and order a Coke. And then come back and tell us what happened. But don't get caught. <laughs> it's just investigative journalism, ladies and gentlemen, at its finest. Uh, one little footnote on here. There's another company, uh, I guess it's based in Georgia, Home Depot, which didn't take 
any position on the Georgia voting rights law. Just stayed out of it. Just kept selling, you know, wood and home furnishings and equipment and stuff. And now it's under attack and there are calls to boycott Home Depot. I forget exactly who's calling for this. Not because it opposed the law, but because it was neutral and that's not allowed. That's not allowed according to these boycotters. That's just crazy. Whole lot of crazy stuff going on. Hope you're staying safe. Get the vaccine if you haven't already. Help yourself, help your family, help your friends, help your colleagues. Help America. We're so close to beating this thing, but we need more people to get the shots. In some areas, they're still hard to get, but they're getting easier to get. I know personally more people who are getting them, and there are these mass vac sites and so forth. So I hope we'll all pull together on that. I thank you for listening. I'd appreciate if you would subscribe to our little podcast here. We'll see you all tomorrow with more BuzzBeaters. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.